uh, teaching time together this morning. And you're in for a real treat this morning. We've been going through a series called Hidden Figures, and we've taken that from uh, the movie title. And of course, the movie is about a group of women working diligently in the background, doing incredibly important things, but that are not always lifted up and elevated in the way uh, that other figures are in history. And so this morning, we're going to conclude that series by looking at uh, one figure in particular, the figure of Mary Magdalene. And to do that with us, uh, we have Rose. Rose is an attendee here at Jericho. Oh, you're getting applause before you even start. Uh, Rose is uh, a wonderful and thoughtful uh, graduate of Acadia Divinity School. Uh, she's a preacher. In her bones, she's a preacher. And Rose has lived uh, through many challenges in her life. She survived three brain tumors. She lives with chronic fatigue, with lymphedema, and currently, or most recently, with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which has uh, paralyzed half of your face. And so, even really to be here and to preach this morning uh, is a real statement of courage and hope for you, Rose. And so, we're delighted to have you share uh, from God's Word with us this morning uh, in Mary Magdalene's story. So, let me pray for you. God, we are wonderfully grateful for your good work in Rose's life. You have protected her. You have been good to her. You have taught her much in the midst of suffering. You have taught her much that she has learned and is ready to share with us. And so, God, we open our hearts. We pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would open our ears to hear the things that you would have each and every one of us to hear on this Easter Sunday morning as we stand there with the women at the empty tomb. And so we pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Great. Well, this is the first time I've ever preached sitting down. <laughs> yeah. That's Change glasses. Okay, so last Sunday, while looking over Jericho Ridge's schedule for the Easter week, I was pleased to see my name listed as a speaker for today, followed by the bracketed initials JRCC. I am so delighted to be part of the Jericho Ridge family. So as your sister in Christ and in a spirit of transparency, I should tell you that unlike last week's speaker, who uh, is a seasoned preacher and who pastored a church for 25 years, my experience is completely opposite to that. I haven't stood behind a pulpit for 25 years. So, if you find my sermon a bit long this morning, please keep in mind that I'm making up for two and a half decades of silence. <laughs> but don't worry, we'll all be home in time for supper. Okay? 
Today, I'll be closing off the Hidden Figures series by speaking about Mary Magdalene. However, I'm keenly aware that today we're celebrating Easter, which on the surface appears to be all about Jesus and the resurrection. It's almost, almost wrong to talk about anybody else. Resurrection Sunday should and must be centered around the most important, important person who ever walked the face of the earth, Amen. Jesus Christ. However, the gospel narratives include many other people, people that God scripted very carefully into the drama of the resurrection. And Mary Magdalene was certainly one of them. But compared to Jesus Christ, she and the other disciples were merely stars to his son, to his brilliance. For every minute I spend this morning talking about Mary Magdalene, I won't be talking about Jesus. So let me take as little time as I can to give you just a, a taste of how her personality and character were hijacked by the Gnostic Christians in the second century, and then by a leader of the Orthodox Church in the late 6th century. Now, it's well established that Mary Magdalene died in Turkey at the very beginning of the 2nd century, 100 AD. While she isn't mentioned in scripture after the resurrection accounts, mystique surrounding her began to circulate in the middle of the 2nd century after she was long dead. At that time, several heretical Gnostic groups surfaced in Christianity, preaching a gospel that was quite different from the one that Jesus preached and passed on to his disciples. Now, the word Gnostic comes from the root gnosis, and it means knowledge. The Gnostics believed they'd been enlightened by divinely imparted knowledge that was not available to the average person. They were kind of like intellectual snobs. <laughs> now this gnosis supposedly gave them special insight into the nature of life, salvation, God, and eternity. Some of these groups hijacked the persona of Mary Magdalene as their authority, claiming that she received gnosis or knowledge taught exclusively to her by Jesus after the resurrection. And this coveted insight was granted to them through a gospel written down by an anonymous secretary. Now, I've had the opportunity to read that gospel and I won't go into its teachings specifically, except to say that they do not resemble in the least the gospel Jesus preached and then handed down to the apostles and the disciples. What can I say? Poor Mary Magdalene. Long dead, she couldn't defend herself against the claims of the Gnostics. She had nothing to do with the character and persona of her that they developed. And unfortunately, the abuse and the distortion didn't stop there. From the unlikely source, from the very ranks of Orthodox Christianity came another assault which continued into the 20th century. 
Pope Gregory the Great, in a sermon written in 591 AD and considered gospel truth by the Orthodox Church at the time, asserted that Mary Magdalene was one and the same as Mary of Bethany, who had anointed Jesus' feet and dried them with her tears. He asserted that Mary Magdalene was the woman taken in adultery, who Jesus saved from stoning. And finally, he stated that she was a prostitute, infested with the demons of lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, wrath, envy, and pride. From that point on, right up until 1969, Mary Magdalene was portrayed as a formerly morally bankrupt woman involved in the sex trade. Oh yeah, she was redeemed by Christ, but given her checkered past, she could only be an unimportant footnote in biblical history. She was destined to be the role model of repentance and gratitude and absolutely nothing more. I don't know where Pope Gregory got his impressions of Mary Magdalene, but they weren't from his New Testament. Because his New Testament was the same as the one we hold in our hands today. The fault was never with Scripture. It's never with Scripture. But with Pope Gregory, a person who abused his incredible authority within the Orthodox Church of the 6th century. And he used it to undermine and marginalize Mary Magdalene. And unfortunately, with her, her entire gender. In a very rare move, the Catholic Church corrected Pope Gregory's false teaching in 1969. However, winking at biblical inaccuracy and misinformation for centuries is like slicing a feather pillow open in a windstorm. When you finally realize you've been foolish, it's impossible to stuff all those airborne feathers back into the pillowcase. My grandparents, devout Catholics, born in the late 19th century, well before 1969, taught that error to their children. My father, born in the 1920s, and together with my dad, my grandparents, taught me born in 1958. Despite an earnest attempt to set the record straight, the church's correction never made it to the rank-and-file Catholic. And Pope Gregory's misinterpretation of Mary persisted. Now, I gave my heart to Christ and left the Catholic Church when I was 14 years old. And as a new Christian involved in uh, the youth of a Baptist church, I was in a reach-for-the-top team challenge at a Baptist youth event. And when the question was asked, who was the, what was the name of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, I pressed the buzzer with that know-it-all exuberance of youth, and I shouted out, Mary Magdalene! Hmm. And it wasn't enough that I was dead, cold, wrong. No, 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 no. I was so convinced I was right that I called a timeout to the game and made the host prove it to me from the Bible. (laughs) 
talk about a valuable life lesson and a real embarrassment to an earnest 16-year-old biblical scholar wannabe. Now, make no mistake, I hated being proven wrong. But that was just a surface wound. I was forced to realize I'd been steeped in Catholic teaching, which often went counter to scripture. And I was steeped so thoroughly and so absolutely that I needed to re-examine everything I thought I knew about Christianity. This experience drove me to scripture, and no theological topic or detail of biblical history was safe for me. My constant questions became, and still remain, where do you find that in the Bible? And is that biblically accurate? So here's a lesson that I learned a long, long time ago in those early days of my new walk with Christ. If you're going to live your life in accordance with biblical truth, you better know what the Bible says because it's an extremely powerful book with the capacity to build you up or tear you down, depending on how it's used and who is using it. As a person trained and commissioned to teach and preach the gospel, I take this extremely seriously. And I hold myself and I hold others who share my calling accountable accountable to keep our teaching biblical, to keep it accurate, to keep it balanced. Amen. Now that I've scratched the surface of what the heretical factions of Christianity taught about Mary Magdalene, let's look at what scripture says about her. And scripture says surprisingly little, but more than enough. Now first, and you probably figured this out, there were a lot of Marys in the New Testament. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in my family of origin, every one of my aunts on my father's side was named Mary. Mary Evangeline Mary, Teresa Mary, uh, there were seven, seven women, all of them named Mary at some point. That, that reflects what was going on in the Bible. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, they were distinguished by associating them with their husbands or their notable children. For example, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus, a notable character, of course. Mary, the wife of Clopas. She was married to Clopas. That's how they figured out she was that Mary. But Mary Magdalene appears to not have any of those kinds of associations with her name. So she was probably single, childless, and she traveled with Jesus and, and she was able to travel with him probably because she didn't have a family to take care of. So it's most likely that the word Magdalene refers to her hometown, the city of Magdala on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, six miles away from Capernaum. And it was a town noted for its strong towers and castles, as well as its impressive textile industry. The Bible also tells us that uh, Mary Magdalene was a woman of financial means, who along with other well-to-do women, traveled with Jesus, was taught by Jesus, and they supported his ministry financially, 
and they saw to his material needs. Now, we're not told specifically how Mary Magdalene made her money, but it's quite possible, and most scholars believe, that she was involved in the textile industry for which Magdala was so famous. The Gospels also mention that Mary Magdalene had suffered from demon possession. In fact, they said that Jesus expelled seven demons from her. Clearly, she was in a great deal of emotional and spiritual agony before she met Jesus. But he rescued her from her torment. Far from going into detail about the nature of the demons that harassed her, the Gospels simply mention her former state and they treat it as almost irrelevant to her new life in Christ. And after all, isn't, isn't that true? Our lives before Christ are irrelevant, both the good aspects and the bad aspects. Remember, the Apostle Paul would say that all his accomplishments, which were many, added up to exactly nothing, exactly zero when compared to the outstanding superior value of knowing Christ. Mary Magdalene could also say the same of her former demon possession. Didn't matter at all, because now she knew Jesus and her life was new. Christians, whether their name is Paul, Mary, Megan, Brad, Shirley, Sandy, Muriel, Rose, <laughs> We're all the same. Sinners saved by grace, period. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus devotedly. She was a committed disciple. She traveled with him. And when mentioned with the other women who also traveled with him, she is listed in all cases except for one first. Only the crucifixion account mentions her last among the women who stood as close to the cross as they could get. And why was that? For no other reason than, than that the other women mentioned first were blood relatives of Jesus Christ. And she was not. But Mary's prime place in every other instance denotes her importance. Now, could it be that she was recognized as a natural leader among her circle of influence? Maybe. But given the fact that the Gospels are the 2020 hindsight recollections of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I suspect that Mary's importance was solidified because she was the first person to bear witness to the resurrected Jesus. Jesus Christ made her important. And as the Gospel writers looked back over the scope of Jesus' life and his ministry, of course, she took on a significant role. And nowhere did her star shine brighter than in the incredible account of the first post-resurrection appearance. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the, the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who, whom Z Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb 
and I don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. Then the other disciple also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they had, hadn't realized that the scriptures said he would rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels sitting at the head and foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. He, she glanced over her shoulder and saw someone standing behind her. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned toward him and exclaimed, Teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but, but go find my brothers and tell them what that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So early on that Sunday morning, even before the sun rose, Mary Magdalene and her female entourage were women on a mission. I suspect Mary had just lived through the longest, most frustrating, most disappointing, most grief-stricken day of her life. I wonder how many times she relived the horrors of Golgotha on that intermediate day, the Jewish Sabbath, where according to religious law, she was forced to sit by idle while Jesus' body laid abandoned, unmourned, and uncared for. She'd seen where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had taken Jesus' body, and she'd watched as they carried his tortured corpse, a hundred pounds of embalming spices, and grave clothes into the tomb to quickly prepare his body for burial before the start of the Sabbath. I'm sure at some point, Mary decided whatever had been done with and for the body was simply not enough. She could do better. She had to do better. After all, that was her job, taking care of the master, seeing to his needs as best she could. And this would be the very last time she could be of service to him. Or so she thought. So off they went, those determined females, carrying everything with them, everything they needed to give Jesus the burial he deserved. Now there was that troubling matter of the large rock blocking the tomb. 
Well, they crossed that bridge when they came to it. Amazingly, though, when they reached the tomb, the rock had been moved, and the entrance to the tomb was wide open. Oh, no! Grave robbers! The women rushed in, and to their absolute horror, the body was missing. At this point, the women talked about, in the other Gospels, retreat from the story, leaving a frantic Mary Magdalene to sound the alarm to Peter and John. John. You know John. He was the apostle whom Jesus loved especially. He was the writer of the Gospel of John, a bona fide eyewitness to the events of the empty tomb. Here was a man bold enough to take up a quill and commit the event to manuscript. That John. Now, while the other Gospels write from secondhand experience, here is the firsthand account from an actual witness. What are the chances he got it wrong or confused? My guess? Nil to non-existent. So after receiving the disturbing news, Peter and John sprinted to the grave. To me, it reads like a horse race. And they're off! John is quick to tell us that he got there first and waited for Peter. Peter followed close behind and leaving John in his dust, catapults into the tomb, winning by a nose. <laughs> and what did they find? Well, exactly what Mary told them in the first place. The body was indeed missing. <coughs> but the tomb looked anything but pilfered, anything but disturbed. It was downright tidy. The grave clothes lay neatly to one side, and the sweatband, the thing around his that would have been put around his head, was meticulously rolled up at the head of the grave slab, like whoever did it had an eternity of time on his hands, which in fact he did. <laughs> and then the Gospel of John in verse 8 says a very interesting thing. It says, John saw the empty tomb, and to quote it exactly, he saw and believed. You know, people believe a lot of things, and believing doesn't make them true. I met a guy one time who thought he was the angel Gabriel, but the facts didn't support his belief. So exactly what did John believe? Confronted with the fact of the empty tomb and remembering the confusing statements that Jesus had made, which the disciples couldn't quite get their heads around, they couldn't quite comprehend them. Those were probably coming to his mind. You know, the one like John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus standing, you know, at the temple says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, John starts to think, I think, and I think he believed it was quite possible, maybe even probable, that Jesus had risen from the dead. But John had no solid proof. 
An empty tomb did not a Messiah make. He had no facts. He had no evidence. So, scratching their heads and grappling with possibilities and implications, Peter and John amble home to their respective homes. But where, where was Mary? And, and, and what was she thinking? What did Mary Magdalene believe? Undoubtedly, she was convinced that her dear, generous, compassionate Jesus was dead. She'd watched with her own two eyes as he had taken what she believed to be his very last breath as he hung on the cross. She was there. She saw that. She'd accompanied his body to the grave. I think she wished with every fiber of her being that it wasn't true. But facts were facts were facts. And no amount of faith could change them. So when she arrived at the tomb for the second time that day to find it occupied, she couldn't have cared less. She saw two young men dressed in white, one at the head of the slab and one at the foot. And despite their concerns for her tears, Jesus' body was still missing. All she cared about was what she couldn't see and what she so desperately wanted to find. Why was she crying? Wasn't it obvious? They have taken my Lord and I can't find him. Poor Mary. She was the epitome of an hysterical woman. <laughs> Turning from the tomb, her eyes blinded by tears, no doubt, she was greeted by someone she took to be the gardener. Ignoring his gruff, woman, you know, why are you crying? That redundant question she just answered. She mustered up as much respect as she could, and she said, sir, if you put Jesus somewhere else, just tell me where he is, and I'll take him away. Now, she clearly was not thinking straight. She wasn't daunted by the logistics of how one solitary, distraught female could carry an unshrouded, fully grown, dead man from wherever it was he was to where she wanted him to be. But you know, I think in her mind, she thought, you know what, wherever he is, wherever it where, I'll get it done. I, I'll do it if it takes the last ounce of strength I have. Mary. What? How did the gardener know her name? And then it dawned on her that unexpected, transforming, joy-inducing salutation changed Mary Magdalene forever. She heard her name, her very own name, spoken from the mouth of the master she loved more than her own life. Jesus wasn't dead, and he wasn't missing, and she was the first one to see him alive. Rabboni, she answered. 
Rabboni, teacher. Now, the popular fallacy that Mary and Jesus were married can be put to rest by that one endearing but formal title. I find it hard to imagine that a woman believing that her husband was dead and finding out that in fact he wasn't would greet him with such a formal title. I mean, beloved, dear one, sweetheart, pookie. Now, now those I could put my belief in as coming from a wife. But Rabboni? I, I, I don't buy it. She addressed Jesus for who he was in her life. And in her life, he was her beloved teacher. Mary's first response to the resurrected Jesus was to hug him. Possibly, as the Gospels of Matthew states, by falling at his feet and grasping his feet in worship. But Jesus clearly says in John, stop, meaning whatever it is you're doing, don't do that. Jesus said, go tell the others I'm alive. And with that, Mary headed in the direction of the other disciples and did what Jesus asked of her. She told the pure, unvarnished truth. Interestingly, though, the Gospels of Mark and Luke recount that the disciples' response to her declaration was unbelief. How reliable was the witness of a woman? How believable was a female with a history of irrational, demonic behavior? Why leave a woman so despised that she wasn't even worthy to be called property by a husband. Who's going to take the word of a woman whose testimony would be inadmissible in a court of law? But I believe that John took Mary Magdalene's witness very seriously. Nowhere in the account of John's gospel does it assert or imply that Mary Magdalene was telling anything but the truth. John's as yet unsubstantiated faith fits seamlessly with Mary's proof. Mary's bold, unashamed, unabashed, unbridled testimony of fact. He is risen. I have seen him. I have touched him. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he has appeared to Cephas. Then he, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all, to all the apostles, 
Last of all, as to one untimely, I'm timely. Wait, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> to, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God by the grace of God. I, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and this his grace toward me is not vain. On the contrary, contrary, I knew I was right then. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Okay, I know that. Is this thing on? Okay. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The First fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. So after Mary Magdalene delivered Jesus' message, she vanished from the pages of scripture, gone without another mention. Distorted by heretics, maligned by the sixth century Christian orthodoxy, and largely misunderstood ever since. I'm glad she was safely in heaven long before the controversy surrounding her legacy could hurt her. But what about her testimony? Was the message Jesus gave her to deliver to the apostles really that important? The apostle Paul thought so. In fact, he was so thoroughly convinced, he called the events of Holy Week ending in the resurrection of first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states as strongly and as pointedly as he could that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the Christian faith was useless and those who preached it were liars. Friends, an empty cross meant nothing. All crosses were eventually emptied. The crucified bodies disposed of one way or the other. An abandoned tomb could be explained away just as Mary Magdalene initially explained it away. And it made 
a certain amount of sense. Jesus' body had been stolen. But what made her disbelief vanish, what made it absurd and absolutely unthinkable was nothing less than Jesus Christ in the flesh calling her by name and making her what one commentator calls the apostle to the apostles. The apostle Paul believes so adamantly in the historicity of the resurrection. He believed it so passionately and he was so intent on proving it to the world. He committed one of the great errors of omission ever recorded. Citing witnesses to the resurrection, he lists Cephas or Peter and then the 12 apostles including Peter and then more than 500 brethren at one time, James, and finally himself. He mentions everybody but Mary. Everybody but Mary Magdalene. Why did he ignore her when she's so prominently mentioned in the Gospels? He was simply doing his job. He was the preeminent defender of the faith at the time. And he was citing credible witnesses to the truth of the resurrection and the claims of the gospel. Given the patriarchal society of the time, Mary Magdalene, quite simply put, would not have been considered credible, believable. Yet there she stood, heralded in the Gospels as the first witness to the resurrection and the very first preacher of the good news. She was resoundingly confirmed by Jesus himself. He didn't leave her hanging. He didn't leave the apostles unbelieving for a long period of time. He appeared to them that very same day. What a beautiful vindication of Mary Magdalene from the risen Lord. But you know, charged with her message from Jesus, Mary didn't care what others, what others thought of her. It only mattered what Jesus thought of her. Others may have thought she was unworthy, but Jesus trusted her with the best, the greatest, and the most important news the world would ever hear. And she did not disappoint him. For me, she represented a truth that the Apostle Paul would highlight in Galatians chapter 3. And get this one. In God's kingdom, there are no hidden figures. There is no one who's disqualified from the love of God or even the call to share the good news of the gospel on the basis of their nationality, their social status, or their gender. God calls people into his church from every tribe and every nation, every economic and social background, and both genders. Paul said, and I quote, for all you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male 
nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He called me at the age of 14, and I felt the call to Christian service at the age of 26. And I was affirmed in that call by the local church, given my license to preach. I was trained, and I was commissioned. And yet, when I look at my life, the only credential I prize is that I am a child of God, saved by grace, and deeply deeply loved by Jesus. In God's providence, I've lived a life of relative obscurity. I haven't had a lot of opportunity to preach the gospel. It's just how it's been. But it's been my great privilege to love and serve Jesus, to witness to his forgiveness of my sins, to his saving power, which wrought me blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I have nothing to say but that Jesus has been faithful and loving. He took a sinful, unworthy nobody and, made, and, and loved her so much and brought her into salvation with a grace that I could not resist. Like the gospel song says, there was no one who ever cared for me like Jesus. There was never one so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. I find it greatly comforting to know that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he first commissioned Mary Magdalene, someone a lot like me. He delights in calling the sinful, the lost, the broken, the overlooked, the abused, the marginalized, the lonely, and even those of us who are occasionally hysterical into a living and loving relationship with him. Looking out over the congregation today, is there anyone here who in all honesty does not or has not fallen into one of those categories? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you feel the Spirit calling you into relationship with him today? In the book of Proverbs, we're told to guard our hearts, for from them flow the springs of life. Our hearts motivate our direction. How better to protect our heart than to give it to Christ and allow him to steer our intentions and our directions. Allow him to give him us the desires, the right desires of our hearts. Today I would challenge you to meet the resurrected Jesus, who is every bit as alive today as he was on that first Easter Sunday when he told Mary Magdalene, go and tell. Go and shout the good news to those who desperately need to hear it. And if you have not heard it, until today, you desperately need to hear it. Listen as he calls you by name. He sees you. He wants to give your life an eternal purpose. Listen as I tell you, like Mary Magdalene did on that very first resurrection morning. Jesus Christ 
is risen from the dead. I pray that with the redeemed, you will respond today and know for sure he is risen indeed. Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful gift to us of Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the tomb. And we thank you for the risen, re resurrected Lord. We thank you that your desire is to be in relationship with us and that you let nothing stand in your way. You never even let the life of your only begotten son stand in the way. Lord, I pray that today you will speak to those that you choose, that you will, you will open their hearts and their minds to the reality of your resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.